previously on Relative Fiction. And I remember Nicole's mom giving me a look directly about like, this is a no-go area, like, please don't. Our apartment looked like it had been broken into, kind of like ransacked. That's when everything bad happened, when we came back, because David was gone. My experience with Nicole's mom was that she seemed a lot more like my friends with divorced single moms than she did necessarily a widow. That was when it started. That was the lie. That was the beginning of it. That was now the story. We have changed some names to protect people's privacy. But all of these stories are true. I made the first real attempt to find my dad a few years after Elvis had taken me to see the palm reader. But his name was so common. And searching for someone on the internet with a very common name and zero leads finds only the very best or the very worst. I clicked through mugshots, wedding announcements, death notices. I spent many hours looking for a face that resembled mine. These were also the early days of the internet, before everyone had a social media handle. Some of us very recently stopped asking Jeeves to find us things. So this task of looking for a random, common-named man with no ties to my immediate circle and zero internet presence, it felt impossible. I thought about hiring a private investigator, but I was broke. In fact, I had so little money that I would do most of my detective work while sitting in a broken-down Dodge Colt in my neighbor's driveway, just so I could use her Wi-Fi signal. Frustration turned into doubt, and I remember Dr. Laura's words. If he wanted to find me, he would if have. If he wanted to find me, he if he would wanted have. to find me, he would if have. If he wanted to find me, he would have. Why am I even looking for him? He didn't want me. I imagine my father already disappointed. Here I am, a long-lost gay cartoonist daughter covered in tattoos with a mouth full of fillings appearing out of nowhere, asking to be embraced. But as I was getting my book ready for publication, I decided to try one last time. I remembered some information my sister Megan had shared with me that would become crucial to my search. She had told me, David had two boys from his previous marriage and they were a few years younger than me and they would come over to our house and we would, you know, hang out with them. Um, one of them's named Jason, one of them's named Brandon or Brendan. I plugged my father's name into another people-finding site. Armed with a bit more pocket change, I threw caution to the wind and paid 35 whole dollars for an upgrade that would show me his next of kin. I clicked and clicked through all the entries. I found a David that was close to the age my father would have been. He had lived in Ohio and Texas and California. I saw Brendan attached as a relative. I also saw Jason. Those must be my half-brothers. There was also a woman named Tina listed, and bam, there was my mother's name. This had to be him. I chased this lead down a Facebook rabbit hole. I found Brendan, I looked through all his friends, read through the comments, and there it was, my father's name, Bingo. I had always been told my father was handsome, and when I looked at his profile picture, I found that was true, but something was off. He was young, too young. 
This profile picture was of a man maybe in his early 20s, and he did not look like a Belushi. He looked like he could be one of the featured bachelors on The Bachelor. He was TV handsome. I knew he couldn't be my Benjamin Button dad, but this was as close as I had ever come. So I sent him a truly bonkers message anyway. Nicole is my, I guess, half-sister, right? Think that's how it works? Mm -hmm. Step, half, one of the two, one of those things. Nearly a decade after finding out that my dead father was very much alive, I had found my baby brother, David Jr. You know, when you reached out, it wasn't a surprise to my mom at all. And it seems his mother, Tina, had been expecting me. When David, little David told me, I, I was just, I just cried because I knew, I knew that, that you had found us. And I always told them, I said, someday that girl with the eyes like yours is going to knock on the door. They both seemed genuinely excited to meet me. I was relieved and a little surprised, but I couldn't gauge how sensitive the topic of our father's whereabouts would be. They kept referring to him as if he'd left. Had he abandoned this family too? David Jr. was so open and friendly with me, it made me feel comfortable asking what I really wanted to know. It had taken years to get to this point, and I was only one message away from finally learning the truth. From Oregon Public Broadcasting, I'm Nicole J. Georges, and you're listening to Relative Fiction. If you tell a lie enough, right, it becomes the truth, and that's the only thing you know. This is terrible of me, but because of his history, the first thing I thought was, does he have another family? I do remember that he hired a private investigator to try and find you, but they changed your name. You're going to get really different stories from different people. There's not going to be a central story in some ways, and that's the story. Like, how could all these things happen to us growing up and no one noticed? It made me really question, did all of this happen the way I remember it? With the help of my producer, Claudia Meza, we'll be delving into the heart of one of the most nebulous mysteries of the universe, family. Chapter three, this charming man. When I started this journey of finding my father, I had braced myself for rejection or a new family member, but there was no way of preparing for what met me at the end of this search. I hadn't even fathomed the possibility. I remember my mom saying that he had a picture of his daughter, either in his car or his wallet, um, and it might have been in his wallet that we got back, you know, once he had passed away. It seems the reason David Jr. and his mom Tina were so excited to meet me and tell me all about my dad was because that was the only way I would be able to meet him. My father was dead. Again. And this time it was real. It wasn't colon cancer. It was a massive stroke brought on by years of heart disease. I had missed him by less than a year. And he died, according to David Jr., possibly with a baby picture of me in his wallet. This was the moment when the repercussions of the lie and everything that came after finally felt real. I just cried because I knew. I knew that, that you had found us, but he was gone. I was never going to meet my dad. And my father? He hadn't abandoned David Jr. or Tina like I thought. 
he possibly hadn't even abandoned me. And my mom was like, you know, we've tried to find her forever. She was, she was like, oh, you know, because dad, you know, always wanted to meet her, you know, or be around. It's his daughter. You know, he would have been ecstatic. According to them, he had also been a really wonderful guy that looked for me and even hoped I'd find him. A good part of my identity had been formed around the idea that my dad wasn't worth knowing. So all this new information was confusing and destabilizing. And here was a new family, my father's family, eager for me to join their pack. But I still had so many more questions. If he looked for me, why didn't he find me? If he was such a good guy, why was my mom so adamant on keeping me away from him? Where to start? How about we start this one in a small suburb of Houston, Texas? Do you remember how big their house was? Yeah, new build. It was huge. And I remember pulling in and there were fancy cars in the driveway. After a couple of years of corresponding and exchanging pet pictures with David Jr. and Tina, I took them up on their open invitation to visit anytime. So I flew into Southeast Texas with my sister Megan in tow. Because during one of my many calls with my sister, trying to process all this new information, she had offered. I said, if you ever want to go visit his grave, I will go with you. Megan flew down to meet me in Austin. We rented a car, and Megan played DJ with the two CDs she had brought on the plane from Kansas. A best of Elvis compilation and the Glee soundtrack. Megan was eager to make amends to me by helping to set up this trip. I was anxious about what we would find. So here we were, driving up to a giant house in our subcompact rental, trying to find a parking spot along a driveway filled with fancy cars. There was like a, maybe like a pink Jeep with Summer's name on it. Yeah, and there was a gigantic black like an Escalade. Summer is David Jr.'s younger sister my half-sister. Their mom, Tina, was with my father for the final 25 years of his life. She was arguably his biggest, most substantial love. And she also helped my father raise his two other boys from a previous marriage, Brendan and Jason. But the more I heard them speak, the more my life felt like a gritty documentary, while theirs was more like a TV sitcom. And there was big leather couches, very far apart. Mm -hmm. Remember, it was a really big room. Mm -hmm. Really and high ceilings. Really high ceilings, really cold feeling. Megan and I stepped into their grand, lovely home. It was summertime, and we were both already covered in sweat from the short walk to their house. But I still kept my sweater on to cover my tattoos. I felt like that weird kid again, slinking into my seat in the back of the classroom, trying to stay invisible. But that feeling didn't last long. David and Tina's warmth melted any initial intimidation. Photo albums were whipped out, iced tea was served, and in a room full of rescue dogs, I was welcomed home. And I can confirm that yes, my dad did look like a handsome Belushi. He had bright blue eyes, a longer version of my own nose, and a round face. Other than that, Every detail was brand new. There were photos of David Sr. as the coach for various Little League teams. There were photos of him peering into a baby's incubator. There was one of him on the beach protecting a scrawny, toddler version of my brother against a giant wave. 
And to them, my dad was no con man. Here's David Jr. You know, whatever stories you had heard, you know, maybe that had to be part of the story to kind of keep what was supposed to be the truth in your head. Wasn't a con man. He was, he was a normal dude, awesome dad. I was getting that familiar feeling. I was having trouble recognizing which mirror was real. I know things aren't always as good as they seem, but I enjoyed listening to this more benevolent depiction of my father. I wanted to believe this was it. This was who he was, and everyone lied and conspired to keep me away from a great guy. But there were too many other conflicting stories that needed sorting through. There was what my little brother David Jr. was now telling me. He was a good guy. You know, he's a hard worker. Um, Always wanted to do good for his family and always good to my mom. We just wish he was here and could have stuck it out a little longer for us. And then there was what I heard growing up. Here's Megan. There was always kind of this underlying he was kind of like a slick con man. I needed some grounding. So it was time to filter out what we were told by our mother and what we had actually experienced. Coming up after the break. He built uh, like a suppressor for like a pistol. Like a a silencer? Yeah, a silencer. Like he, he built it in the garage. Welcome back to Relative Fiction. My father, David, entered my mom's life while my sisters were still in elementary school. And at first, he seemed like a younger version of the man David Jr. grew up with. David was charismatic, very funny, very full of life, very adventurous. David didn't act like a stepdad. He was more like a cool older brother or a fun uncle. I mean, I don't remember him ever, like, throwing a ball with me or something in the yard. Mm -hmm. But I just remember always liking him. He was fun. And I would hang out with him and visit while he was fixing his sports car. I remember he taught me how to change spark plugs. And that's when Pac-Man was major. And the two of us would go hang out at the arcade, like, all afternoon. But Megan also remembered him chain-smoking in his sports car, driving fast with the windows up and the AC on blast. There was always a gun in his sports car, you know, like in the glove box. There was always a gun. That aligned with the detail Tina relayed when she told me that my father's business partner had double-crossed him the moment of his death. And when I went over there to get his stuff, you know, that he had left, that guy pretty much cleaned them out. He took all his notes, all his papers, all his work, and a lot of his clothes. He took all his guns. Your dad was a big gun freak. Being a big gun freak, as Tina put it, doesn't automatically make one a bad guy. But why was he driving around with one in the glove box of his car, as my sister pointed out? And this led me to the next question I had concerning one of his patents. He had 13 different patents when he passed. He was an engineer by trade, so this made sense. But what exactly was he inventing? Did Toad tell you the story about the suppressor for the gun? Toad is an affectionate name David and his sister Summer have for their mom. It's based off of her preferred character in Mario Kart. He built uh, like a suppressor for like a pistol. Like a a silencer? Yeah, a silencer. Like he he built it in the garage at the house and he wanted to get like a patent for it because he had done it a certain way. And uh, he went to like, 
think he took it to a lawyer guy he knew, you know, he's like, hey man, look what I built. And the guy was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't, like, you gotta go through proper steps to be building this. You can't just be building this out in your garage. He invented a gun silencer out of a PVC pipe. If necessity is the mother of invention, what on earth necessitated my father's need to silence a pistol? Tina also had this interesting story to add about my father from when he was a teenager. Back in the day, remember they had vending machines for cigarettes? He figured out how to put a pipe bomb in there and blow it up so he'd get the money out of it. And he would tell you in his own words that if he wouldn't have gone into the service, he'd he'd have gone to jail because he was extremely rebellious and he was smart. According to Tina, my father enlisted himself in the Navy to clean up his act and he came out a new man. These are details from my father's life that David Jr. and Tina find charming and redeeming. But to me, they make my mom's stories about him being a con man seem more plausible. Here's my sister Megan again. I remember my mom talking about finding like a mask and a gun, like hidden in the closet when we were kids, like young, like I was third grade. I've heard this one as well. There was a Nixon mask, a gun, and a little cloth bag full of jewels. My father tried to give my mom some of the jewelry as a present after she found it, but she was having none of it. Our mother also told us that my dad hung out with sketchy people, which could account for his choice in backstabbing business partners. And according to what is now family lore, our mom walked in on my sister stuffing bookie sheets at the kitchen table. When asked what the heck they were doing, Megan proudly announced, Mom, we're helping David! Megan also said when David got bills, he'd just throw them in the back seat, which didn't always pan out so well. One day, my older sister and I were watching cartoons, and somebody knocked at our door to repossess his car, and we were pretty freaked out about that. All this sounds irresponsible, but not really illegal. When I asked my oldest sister, Liz, if she remembered anything suspicious, her one big memory was the night David and our mom burst into her room to borrow her prized Snoopy sleeping bag. Liz, drowsy and confused, remembers feeling terrified, unsure what the danger was exactly. The adults were acting frantic. David needed to leave immediately. Somebody was after him. I wasn't born yet, but Megan also remembers this incident. He left our house like in the middle of the night. He hitchhiked to California. David was on the run from either the law or someone he owed money. Neither of my sisters can recall which. But they're both firm that there was a frenzy to get him packed and out the door. Our mom spiraled as soon as he left. She was inconsolable, wailing on the floor. Liz, still concerned for her beloved Snoopy sleeping bag, inquired when David might be returning it. Our mother snapped back. He was the love of my life. Who cares about your sleeping bag? My sisters said they weren't able to go back to sleep that night. They were understandably freaked out because there was no one there to comfort them. The adults had once again left the room. Supposedly, my father hitchhiked all the way to California from Ohio. A grown man walking down a highway in the middle of the night, thumb out, holding a child-sized Snoopy sleeping bag. I don't know. It's hard to believe anyone would have stopped for that. But none of this got in the way of my parents' love story. As Megan recalls, My mom went after him, and then when she came back, 
they were married. They got married in, I think, Mexico. I was a zygote here, but I remember this story from my mother's constant repetition. She loves to remind me that I was her love child, conceived one fine night in Ensenada after a couple margaritas on the beach. I grew up with people that actively avoided any mention of my father aside from a few random sordid details. I was eager to hear stories unfiltered through my family. The kind where he wasn't a scoundrel stealing children's sleeping bags or relying on child labor for his dubious side hustles. I wanted to know more about our commonalities and have my dad feel less like a stranger to me. And with Tina and David Jr., it felt like I had finally found that. They were like preachers of the good word that was my dad, and I was quickly becoming a convert. Through me, they were able to relive the memories of a man they both had loved and now dearly missed. And through them, I learned that my father was... Smartass. He had a great sense of humor. You know, he was always the funny guy. I think that you guys would have been absolutely a riot together. But he was also opinionated and liked to tease. Didn't hold his tongue on much. He, you know, messed with my mom. We're Italian, so she's Catholic. He'd talk crap to her about the Pope at random times, you know, just to make her mad, you know, just to poke at her. He, he's always good at poking certain things, you know. He was funny, though. We both love dogs. Like, really love dogs. I had rescued a golden retriever named him Charlie. And your dad fell in love with Charlie. And he and Charlie went everywhere together, everywhere. When dad would travel, and he had a hotel room. He always got two queen beds, one for him, one for Charlie. Andy had a short fuse, but somehow, Tina and David Jr. could still find it charming. I remember one time he'd got a job, and it was like an hour, hour and a half away from here. And he was driving there every day, and I would go because there was like a pond out there, and uh, I would go fish while he'd be in the office working. And I'd always tell him, you know, like, hey, let's change the station or whatever. I'll change the station. He got mad. And, and I remember I got him. I got him so mad that he grabbed all his CDs and everything and threw them out of the window. And I remember watching all his favorite CDs go out of the highway on the bellway. I don't know. I didn't have a phone then, so I couldn't tell my mom, like, how funny I thought it was. So I just had to kind of be quiet and wait like 10 hours until I was home. It was hilarious. And he was so mad. And then, like, a, a week later... He was laughing about it, you know, because he thought it was hilarious too, but it was a good moment to remember about him that I always laugh about. I imagine my dad playfully poking at my mom and how terrible that might have turned out. That's another thing I get from my dad. I also love to playfully tease. It's how I show I care. When I would do it to my mother, she would play along, poke back, but then something would hit her sideways and she would fly into a rage. But it wasn't funny. I don't have any cute stories that line up with David Jr.'s that involve me making my mother furious. I was beginning to see how my mother and father might have clashed. But my mother did marry him, right? I wouldn't be here if he hadn't been charming and kind to her to some degree. My sister Megan has noted. He and my mom seemed incredibly in love. Megan maintains that with all the question marks she has about his character, she really liked David. I had good memories of him, so I was sad when he just was gone. Megan still remembers the last conversation she had with him. He called once, after our move to D.C. He asked how everyone was doing, how I was doing. And he told me not to let the boys pull the wool over my eyes. And that was pretty much the conversation. And that was, that was the end. 
That was the last conversation I ever had with him. After this call, David disappeared. As far as we knew, we never heard from him again. But of course, he kept on living his life. And by the time Tina met my dad, he was nearing his 40s and in the process of being twice divorced. But that didn't stop my father from shooting his shot in either love or business. Here's Tina. I met David um, after several phone conversations when he and his partner had applied for a business loan. He was very engaging on the phone, and I enjoyed talking to him. When he came down and I met him, we were really kind of attracted. I couldn't really work on the loan and go out with him, so I kind of handed it over to somebody else when we started seeing each other. And uh, we dated for a while, and um, he never got the loan. (laughs) Well, at least one of those attempts panned out for him. Tina was only 24 when she married my dad. She comes from a big Italian family and likes talking with her hands. I know they were going back and forth to court, and that's how I found out about Nicole. And when they went for the child support hearings, she never showed. Tina's talking about my mother here. My mother stopped showing up to court one day. According to Tina, it was not my father's choice that we were estranged. He was pretty hurt, and I do remember that he hired a private investigator to try and find you. But they changed your name. He couldn't find you. But the other part was that your grandfather or your uncles or whatever family members were there pretty much stonewalled him, for lack of another word. I don't know. They, they didn't help at all. They covered, and, and you know, I, I don't know why. The stonewalling was a classic George's maneuver. Years prior, when I had gone to my own aunts and uncles looking for answers, I received similar treatment. It's like being gaslit by an entire family. For example, my sister Megan had shared at the beginning of my search that one of my uncles had been really close to my father. Like, he had photos of himself with my dad in his house. When we came over to visit, my mother had slammed them down before I stepped into rooms. So, I called this uncle up to see if he might know of David's whereabouts. I figured since a secret was out, What did he have to lose? My uncle denied everything. He said he didn't know who my father was. And furthermore, what a blessing that my mom's life is so awesome now. Here's my sister, Megan. Because, you know, we don't talk about any of that anymore. You know, I mean, that that's like a vault that's been sealed off. So I believe Tina when she says my family cut David off. I imagined their response to my dad. Your daughter? What daughter? You never had a daughter. But why did he stop looking? And how hard did he look? I mean, yes, they changed my last name. But it was to my mother's maiden name. If he was as brilliant as everyone says, I'm sure he could have figured that one out. Tina said my father's business ventures kept him busy and always moving. We moved a lot. We moved about every 15 months. We've lived different parts of the country, Uh, but we've been in Texas the longest. And eventually, after having two kids of their own and settling down, life just got in the way. I think that if maybe we wouldn't have been so wrapped up in life and him just trying to be alive and be healthy and everything, maybe we would have, you know, tried to find you beforehand. He was not, like, religious, but I like 
to think he was spiritual. And for you to have made contact after he passed was to me like a way of, he found you. And since he wasn't there, you found us. So we could be together. Tina said hearing from me felt like a message from David. I feel like you're a part of him and there's a part of him in you, even though you don't know it. And I don't know, I just want to reach out and hug you because you're a part of him and I miss him really bad. Mm, Sorry. Um, It's been 11 years, so I miss him a lot. I wanted to be hugged by Tina. I had never had a father. I didn't know what a father could have brought to my life. But here was his delegate offering me his comfort. My father died on August 13th, 2009 almost a year to the day before I first reached out to David Jr. via Facebook. As sick as he was, he never quit smoking. And he had gotten up that morning and went out to have a cigarette. There was a security guard that worked nights, and he said he saw him standing there. And then all of a sudden he wasn't. The coroner told me, he said he was gone. It was instant before he hit the ground. Here's David Jr., Um, That's always upsetting looking back at it to know that I honestly feel like, hey, if he didn't smoke, he'd have still been here with us. And, you know, I got a lot of time with him. Summer didn't. David Jr. wept just thinking about the time with their dad that he and his younger sister Summer missed out on. I was still trying to figure out how to cry for my own loss. My father was only 63 when he died alone in a hotel in Kansas City, only 20 minutes away from where I'd gone to high school and met my friend Rachel, where I had asked Dr. Laura if I should return for Christmas, where my mom still lives. My dad had been in town for business, meeting with some possible investors for a new venture he was trying to launch. The fact that he died so close to my childhood home felt eerie. My sister Megan agreed. She was also living in Kansas City when he passed. And that really freaked me out. Because I knew the hospital he died in, because I was like, oh. You know, because I knew right where it would have happened. Back in Texas, after surveying Tina's palatial backyard, Megan and I sat at my father's former kitchen table and tried to absorb the hard evidence of his life. There were newspaper clippings about the time my dad saved a child from drowning in a hot tub at a party. There was a folder full of his patent applications. In the pictures we were shown, he was a wonderful father to David Jr., a loving partner to Tina, a bright star, providing warmth and light for everyone in his orbit. I wanted to know what the rest of his family looked like. Well, the rest of my family looked like but there seemed to be a lack of evidence on that table that my father existed before he met Tina. Tina said it was because my dad had also been estranged from most of his family for the better part of his life. He said he remembers things from his childhood that were pretty bad. David's dad, Frank, left when he was small. He was left with his mother, Bonnie, and her new husband, Marion. And then they had all the other kids, so David was always on the outside. Tina said, my dad and his new stepfather butted heads. I remember at one point, you know, Marion 
just looked at Bonnie and said, look, it's either him or me. So David went. I think that was kind of a chip on his shoulder his whole life. I knew that sting, a feeling like you had a second billing to your mother's new partner. Tina was not shy about telling me her disdain for my grandmother, Bonnie. She was a spoon. How's that? A spoon? A spoon. She liked to stir stuff up. Oh my God, I've never heard that expression before. I like that. I tried really hard with Bonnie because I came from a very, obviously, you know, old school, kind of very tight-knit family. And when we first started seeing each other and said he didn't talk to his mom, hadn't talked to his mother in years, I was like, oh my God, well, you got to have a relationship with your mother and me and my big mouth. And I always kind of regretted it because they were just not good together. David had a horrible childhood. You know, he tried really hard to get along with her. I tried really hard to get along with her. For years, she called me For years, my grandmother called Tina by my mother's name. Tina remembered the last time she heard from Bonnie. Bonnie called David and they had a huge fight over something. I never knew what it was about. I wasn't there. You know, I just know that that was it. He was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. And uh, he never saw her again or spoke to her. So there's another thing my father and I have in common. A complicated relationship with our mothers. Tina said Bonnie was old, but alive somewhere, because evil persists. She said she didn't know where, because David was still not talking to her when he passed. Apparently, Bonnie didn't even attend my father's funeral. Which is just like her last slap in the face. I don't know. I felt bad for your dad because he deserved better. Tina did not recommend finding Bonnie if a loving family was what I wanted. I took her word for it. I didn't need another problematic matriarch in my life. I thought my search was over. I had found my dad, or what was left of him on this mortal coil. I learned that maybe he wasn't a scumbag, and that I might have missed out on knowing someone pretty wonderful. I published a graphic novel with all my findings, and this wild chapter of my life was literally over. Great, I thought, now I can finally focus on just being gay and dressing up my dog Ponyo in baby clothes. But little did I know that while I was searching for my dad, meeting his family, and forcing Ponyo into sailor suits, somebody else was looking for me. In the next episode... And my mom's like, Julie... I think I found her. I think this is Nicole. And I'm like, what do I have to lose, mom? (laughs) Anything for you. I really feel like I got to do this right now. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have a wild family mystery that you're still trying to figure out? Tell us about it. Leave us a voicemail at 503-293-1993. Are we secretly related? Email us at relativefiction at opb.org. If you like our podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It really helps people find us. Relative Fiction is brought to you by Oregon Public Broadcasting. It's hosted by me, Nicole J. Georges, and written and produced by Claudia Meza and myself. Sage Van Wing is our executive editor. 
All original music by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Some music in this episode comes from Audio Network. Sound design and audio editing by Claudia Meza. And all mixing and mastering by Stephen Cray, our very own sexy Belushi. Special thanks to Ryan Haas, Elizabeth Miller, and Anna Griffin. Also, member support makes relative fiction and all OPB's powerful storytelling possible. Ensure the next important story is covered and join in now as a sustainer at opb.org pod.